U.S. media organization, so a big U.S. news outlet, it hit the headlines. So it didn't write the headlines this time. This U.S. media outlet, it hit the headlines, and it's all because of a great error, a great mistake that they made about the Christian faith. You following me? So uh, United States media organization makes all these headlines because of a mistake they made about Christianity. So you're ready for the mistake that they made. So the journalist in question, who's actually a really renowned journalist in America, apparently, he wrote this. He was ready for the clangor that he made. He said this, that at Easter, Christians celebrate that Jesus didn't die and that he went straight to heaven. What a mistake to make, right, for a renowned journalist. I'll say that again. At Easter, he writes, at Easter, Christians say that Jesus did not die and that he went straight to heaven. What a mistake. Now, we could use that, I think, this morning as an example of the ignorance that we as Christians face at this time of year. Do you not agree that we face ignorance? Like the Western world really actually today in the 21st century doesn't really have any idea what Easter is all about, does it? If we went out there, what would people say? Easter is about eggs, right? Or chocolate, maybe. Like Easter is about bunnies, about spring. Maybe they would say, well, it's got some religious significance, but I'm really not quite sure what it is, right? We could use that as an example of the ignorance that we face. I do not want to do that just now. Instead, I want to suggest this to you. That we in here, that we as Christians are also guilty of making one particular mistake at this time of year. So what is the mistake that we are sometimes guilty of? Would you listen to this? What is it? Well, when I first became a Christian, um, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you were to ask me, if you had to stop me in the street and say, Andy, what is Easter all about? Do you know what I would have said to you? I'd have said, drop a hat. I'd have said, Easter's all about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, you know, just when I became a Christian, if you found me in the street, I would have said, like, fire burning in my belly. It's this new convert. You said, what's Easter all about? I'd have said, it's all about the, the sin-bearing, sin-atoning. It's all about that cross in Calvary. Is that right? Is it? I mean, it's part of the truth, but it's not the full truth of Easter, is it, friends? Is it? Do you see the problem? Do you see the mistake that we make even at this very weekend, even at Easter time, the church is often guilty of overlooking the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of overlooking the fact that our Savior today, he lives. And I want to ensure that we do not make that mistake this morning. So having on Friday together with other churches, and Good Friday, we looked at the cross and the significance of Calvary. Today, what are we going to do together? We're going to consider the beautiful truth that Jesus Christ for his people has defeated death. Death is nothing to the children of God. The beautiful news that Christ has atoned for sin. The beautiful truth that today he lives. He lives. He lives. 
And to do that, what we're going to do is consider that portion of scripture that we just read together in 1 Corinthians 15. So the first thing that I need to ask you to do, young and not so young in here, is to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, to please ensure that you have that portion of scripture there in front of you. I'll have to trust the people in the balcony that they are doing that. I can't check to see if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, but I'll believe that you do. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, in traditional form, we're going to consider three elements, three aspects, three points from this section of Scripture. So if you're taking notes, get the first heading. It's this, that the church, it should be confronted by the resurrection. We all got that as the first heading. The church should be confronted by the resurrection. So we're ready to look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're ready to, to go for this. Okay. Now I think despite being such a familiar portion of scripture to so many people, I think it's really, really easy to, to misuse or to misapply 1 Corinthians 15. I, I think it's really easy for us to get this section of scripture wrong. What's the first thing that we do then? What do we have to do? First thing we have to do is try to get the context uh, correct, to try and know something about the situation. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15? Hmm? Well, we could go down that route, couldn't we, where I just say to you, this is a letter by the Apostle Paul to a church in the first century world, and we could go down that route. But perhaps you remember the problem at this point in time. Do you remember it? That at this point in time, these Corinthian believers were straying and straying into error. Listen to it carefully. That here the Corinthians were denying a future bodily resurrection of the people of God. Does everyone hear that? Did you get it? So they were not so much denying that Christ was risen. They were not denying that there's salvation through Christ. But they were saying that this was just a kind of spiritual thing. So they were denying that one day all of us here, our bodies shall rise. They were denying that. Now, in this portion of scripture here, Paul is going to tackle that error head on. In fact, you know what he's going to do? He's actually going to show that Christ's bodily resurrection, it demands the view that those in Christ Jesus will also bodily, physically rise. Okay, that's what Paul's going to do. But I've got a bit of an issue here, a bit of a problem. Because I know that some of you in here are lawyers. And I also know that some um, have been in debating clubs in your youth, haven't you? Debating in school and in university and so forth. So what do you good people know? You know that an argument, if it's going to win the day, right? If an argument is going to succeed, what does an argument need? It needs a good foundation, doesn't it? An argument doesn't. It's not winsome, doesn't succeed unless it's got a good base. So do you see what Paul has to do? Do you see it? Do you see the foundation he has to build? Think about it. If he is arguing that Christ's bodily resurrection demands the fact that those in him are going to rise, what foundation does he have to, what does he have to do here? 
he has to affirm that Christ Jesus has actually physically risen from the dead. Doesn't he have to do that? Isn't that the foundation he has to build? And now, if you all look at your page, you see the structure of 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look down with me. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Do you see what he does? Before, in the second half of the chapter, Paul addresses the believer's resurrection. What do you think he does in the first half, in verse 1 to 15? What do you think he does? He speaks to the fact that Christ is actually bodily risen from the dead. In fact, do you know what? Everything this morning revolves around one word. Do you know what Paul does here in this section? He reminds the Corinthians. He reminds them of what they already know. He reminds them of the gospel. In this section, Paul reminds the church that Jesus Christ is risen. He has physically, bodily, actually risen to life again. He reminds them. Now, um, you know if you're a Christian that sometimes it's very, very difficult to apply the Bible, isn't it? Don't you think so? You know this, don't you? You get up, here's my hope as a minister anyway, you get up in the morning and you go and you've got your coffee and you read the Bible and you know that moment, do you, where your reading plan takes you into Deuteronomy and it takes you into Leviticus or Ezekiel and you're scratching your head because it takes you a moment or two to work out the application, the relevance. You're thinking, aren't you? You've got to pray through, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? Doesn't it? Sometimes you've got to work hard to apply scripture and maybe you're thinking that right now in this room just now. Like maybe you're thinking, well, okay, the Corinthian church is denying the future bodily resurrection of the dead, but we are not denying that, right? <laughs> We're not denying. We know that one day our bodies will rise. We're not denying that. So you may be asking, well, what's the relevance of this, man? Like, I mean, how does this apply to us? I want to say to you that there is immense, intense application and relevance. Oh, please hear it. I want to suggest that we in here as Christians, we also need to be often reminded of the central tenets of the gospel. In particular, more exactly, listen to what I'm saying. That like the Corinthian believers, we frequently need to be reminded as Christians that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We need reminding of that. Now, what is, can I ask you a question? What is your first thought there? I mean, do you think it's patronizing? Do you think, well, why, why do we need to be reminded time and time again as Christians that Jesus is risen? Why do we need reminding? Can I right here address that objection? This is what I'm going to do. Let me lay before you some great life-changing benefits of us being regularly reminded of this great truth. Will you hear these? Will you follow these benefits? Will you? You will, right? First of all, being regularly reminded of Christ's resurrection, it is going to set your priorities right in your life. Because I'm the minister here with Harrison, and I have this growing concern about this church, about you and about me. And it has bothered me so much over the last few weeks and over this month. And the concern is about how busy we are as Christians in this room. We're so 
busy in our lives, aren't we? I was thinking about this. Perhaps more than any other group of Christians in the whole of the UK, we in here are busy. Aren't we? You're busy. Like you're really, really busy, some of you, with your work. Incredible hours you're working. Others are really, really, really busy with the kids, aren't you? Busy shipping the kids to clubs and back and forward and busy involved in the kids' school. And some of you are busy with the social life and busy with your friends. Busy, right? I'm correct in that, aren't I? But I say to you, and I ask you to consider, do you not see how incredibly dangerous that is for your Christian walk? I mean, do you not see how incredibly detrimental that busyness can be to your Christian experience? But hang on, wait a second here. Like, what would happen if more frequently, more often, we were confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? What would happen if that was more in focus? Isn't it true? What is truly and properly important in your life would come into view. If you were to more often remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, isn't it true that that there would sort out all the priorities in your life as a Christian, as somebody who is united to him? Can you bear another benefit of this? Can I suggest another one to you? That often being regularly reminded of Christ's resurrection, it will also, yes, it will recall our status before God. See, I want to do this here right now. I want to set up a, a scenario, a situation. I want to describe to you an experience. And I want to ask whether this sounds familiar to you. So you ready for this? You, you analyze your own life as a Christian. Does this sound familiar to you? Are you a Christian who today is struggling? Not so much struggling with faith but struggling with guilt. Is that you? Like you, as you sit here just now, you feel as though you are not living the life you should be living as a Christian. Now you feel as well the guilt because you feel as though, hang on, I'm not possessing the zeal and the fervor that I should have for the gospel. And because of that this morning, you, you, you feel as though God must be angry with you. God must be irritated with you. He must be exasperated with you. And the, the, the weight, the burden of that is weighing so hard on your shoulders. But again, listen, what would happen if more frequently you were confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ is risen? That tomb is empty. What would happen? You would recall that that's you think is on your shoulders has been eternally dealt with you see it you would be reminded no God is not angry with me today that sin is not upon my shoulders you would remember what that today right now God looks at you and wants you to know how much you are loved in the Lord Jesus Christ and then let me give you another one last one here Being regularly reminded of Christ's resurrection, I think this is most important of all. It will surely guard London City Presbyterian Church from error as well. You know what struck me in preparation in 1 Corinthians 15 is exactly the same thing that struck me when I preached on this a few years ago. 
And I think it is how unintended the Corinthian error was. Now, Christian friends, do you see what I mean by it being unintended? Like, I don't think these believers in the first century set out to undermine Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. I, do you know what? I think it was a mistake in a sense. I think they just hadn't thought through the implications of denying our, our future. Is, it was unintended. And do you know what? I think that should send a shockwave right throughout the church. Do you see what it means? Isn't this true? That throughout history, so many heresies in the church have begun, and how? By little, tiny mistakes that have escalated. Isn't that the testimony of church history? So many of these great heresies have begun. How? Because somebody somewhere has just taken their eye slightly off the central biblical tenets of the gospel. And what would happen if in here more often we were reminded of the gospel? If we were often reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what would happen? That surely would guard us as a congregation from going down that path of error too. Friends, do you see the point here? Do you see what I'm saying to you? There are so many benefits of being reminded that Jesus Christ, he lives. Now, if you're a regular at London City Presbyterian Church, you might laugh at me. And you might laugh because so often in sermons, I'm asking questions, rhetorical questions. And I know you laugh at me because of it. And I do not mind. But there is an obvious question that if you're following this sermon, there's an obvious question you must be asking. Isn't there? I mean, if I'm saying to you, it's so beneficial for us to be reminded of the resurrection of Christ. What's the question we all ask? How, Andy, does that happen? Like, how are we to be reminded of the gospel and the fact that there's an empty tomb? Well, I say with no lightness at all, I know I have real responsibility here. And Reverend Perkins has got real responsibility here. And Reverend Thomas and others who preach. What are we to do? What's my job? Sunday by Sunday... On the day the New Testament is set aside for worship, why? Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to stand up here and I'm supposed to confront you with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and to confront you with the resurrection of Jesus. We, we know that. I know that. That's not what I want you to focus on just now. I would long for you to see that you, Christian friend, have work to do here There is application for you, Christian, here. Do you see what I'm saying to you? All of us as believers, we all have to work at regularly reminding ourselves of the gospel. You must be regularly reminding yourself that Jesus Christ is risen. Now you say back to me, don't you, Andy? How do we do that? It's obvious. Isn't it obvious? You need to be here. (laughs) But you do. Sunday by Sunday, you need to be present in the church here to witness, to listen to that gospel resurrection preaching, right? Isn't there other things we can do? We need to pray more, don't we? Is that what you say to me? We need to pray more, yes. But should we not more often pray and pray to the Lord Jesus Christ to fix our mind on Christ as we pray? What better way is there to be reminded that Jesus lives than you and I on a daily basis 
speaking to the one who has been raised. We pray and we pray to Jesus. Can we not also tell other people of this miraculous event? Don't you think so? Isn't that another glorious thing? A glorious way to be reminded of that empty tomb than for you to tell a colleague he lives. To you to teach your children he lives. I could go on. I could go on. You see it though, don't you? As clear as day. What Paul does with the Corinthians is good for your heart too. That we need to be reminded of the gospel. And most especially, we need to be reminded of that Easter truth. What is it? What is it? The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ lives today. So we see that the church should be confronted by the resurrection. Secondly, more briefly, if you're getting notes, taking notes, get the heading. So let's pay attention to the words. The church should be confronted by the resurrection. Now, pay attention to the words here. Secondly, the church can have confidence or can be confident in the resurrection. You got it? So we should be confronted by the resurrection. But here, beautifully, we see that we can be confident in the resurrection. It's fair to say, isn't it, that... Most Christians have favored portions of God's word. Is that right? I've said this before, but I'm never really convinced about the legitimacy of that. But I think if we've been Christians for any length of time, that we have cherished bits of the Bible. Do, do we? We do, don't we? We definitely do. Like portions of scripture... Maybe God has used it to bring us to faith. And we, we love those sections of scripture. And for the rest of our lives and maybe for the rest of eternity, we, we cherish this. Or maybe God has used a portion of scripture or a verse or a, a chapter to bring us through a real time, a trial, misery. Like it's true, isn't it? That most Christians have favorite portions of God's word. Well, do you know what? What you've got in your hands right now, 1 Corinthians 1 to 15, it is cherished. I have no doubt about this. Cherished by a plethora, a multitude of Christians down the centuries. And it's cherished and favored for one particular reason. You want the reason? It's that in front of you just now, what you have is a beautiful summary of the good news of the gospel. So everyone with me, people love this section of scripture because there's this concise, almost synopsis, a summary of what God has done, this plan of redemption. Isn't that great? So if somebody this week asks you, oh, excuse me, what is it you believe as a Christian? What can you do? You can go at 1 Corinthians 15. You can look at this. You can speak about 1 Corinthians 15. You've got this lovely, beautiful summary, so to speak, a synopsis of the, the gospel of God. I love that. I'm excited by that. But what is it? If it's summary, what is it that Paul says to us? Well, you want to look at it, I'm sure, with me. Look at it. Direct your children to it as well. Look at verse 3. Let's have a look at this together. Verse 3. Do you see it? What's the first thing that Paul does? He speaks to the, listen, the substitutionary death 
of the Messiah of God. Now, do you notice what he doesn't do in verse 3? If you're careful and clever, you've already got it. In verse 3, Paul does not call our Lord Jesus. You notice that? He emphasizes the fact that he is the Christ. Now, Paul is deliberately doing this. He is emphasizing that this one who has died is the long-promised anointed one of God, right? But if you're really switched on and had your caffeine, you notice what else Paul doesn't do. He doesn't just say that Christ has died. Oh, this is Easter weekend. Pick it up and hold it to your heart. Look what he says. Cherish it, love it, rest in it, meditate over it. He says that he has died for our sin. He has died for our sin. He has died in our place. Do you see the substitution? He has died for us, for our sin. Then I've got a question for you. What would you expect Paul to do next? So you would expect him. He's spoken about the death of Christ. Come on. What, what do you think he was going to do next? Speaks about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, everyone? Isn't it interesting to see he does not do that? Look at verse 4. What does Paul do it? Do you see? He says that Christ was buried. And that might seem really strange to us, don't you think so? Because remember what I've said to you. This is a really short, concise summary of the gospel. So we're all scratching our heads saying, well, why are you speaking about the burial? Why wouldn't you just go to the resurrection? Paul, why would you speak about the burial of Jesus until we remember the context? Do you not see and hear what he's saying to the Corinthians? He's saying there was an actual corpse that was raised to life. He's saying he was buried. Do you understand it? There was a lifeless body motionless, there was a cadaver, there was a corpse that had to be carried by a number of people and placed in a tomb. He said the Corinthians, there was a corpse that had to be raised. And so we see the death and we see the burial. And then no surprise where we go on Easter morning. We also see that Paul speaks about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he say about the fact that Jesus has risen? Well, do you know what we could do? (laughs) We could get really, really geeky this morning. We really could. We could get get our geeky hats on and get really technical here. And we could pay attention to the tense of the verb that Paul uses about the resurrection. Let Let me do my geeky bit for you. That the tense he uses is called a perfect passive verb. So what? You know, it sounds a bit geeky. Seems yeah. Andy's a geek. Do you see what it means? I mean, first of all, it's passive. It's a. Do you see what he says? Christ was raised. Our Lord Jesus was passive. The hand of the Father was in action as he raises his son. It's a passive verb. Now, what is the other side of it? I said, what did I say? I said it was a perfect passive verb. That's amazing. Do you know what that means? It means that the resurrection was ongoing. It is ongoing. Does everyone see what that means? Jesus was not raised in the manner of Lazarus. You see it? He was not raised only later on in life to die again. It's a 
perfect verb. It's ongoing. Jesus Christ raised by his Father to live. Raised to live forever and ever and ever. We could get giddy. And we could linger on that. And I I do not want to do so because I had a really strange moment when I was preparing this sermon. Up in Scotland, sitting in a bedroom, wrestling with this text. Really strange moment. And I re- I've spoken to you about these moments before. And I reckon you have, probably most of you have had these before. Certainly, if you study the Bible in depth. One of those moments where you're reading your Bible and a little phrase jumps out of you. Have you had those moments? Moments where it's maybe a portion of the scripture you think you're really, really familiar with. And you notice a phrase that you'd never, ever noticed before. Have you had that? Or maybe it's a phrase, a section of the scripture you've never read before. And you read it and the Holy Spirit rests you on a particular set of words. Have you had that? I hope you have. If not, read your Bible more. (laughs) I had one of those moments this week. About a phrase you see about the resurrection in verse 4. And look at it. Because what does Paul say? This is something. He says that Christ was raised on the third day. What's the next bit? Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, he's not talking about the whole of this gospel message because he said before Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. No, I'm going to read it to you again. Christ was raised... On the third day, and that is in accordance with Scripture. Now, I wondered, if you're with me this morning, do you see why that's so arresting? Like, how do we in here as a congregation think about the Old Testament? If I was to put you on the spot, what do you think the Old Testament prophesied? Like, I'm guessing everyone in this room just now, if you know your Bible at all, you would all say that the Old Testament promised a savior everyone knows that right we hopefully we know this right the old testament promised one who was going to come and free their people from their sin great you know a prophet greater than moses greater than david promises a savior we all got that nailed we've got that nailed i think if you know your bible a little bit better you would say that the old testament promises a savior that would suffer and die don't we all know that too a suffering servant promised by Isaiah, one who would go up Moriah with his father to die to free his people. Now, I ask you this question in all sincerity. Ask it of yourself. Before today, could you have affirmed what Paul tells you is true here? That the Old Testament scriptures, they not only promise a resurrection of the Christ... But the Old Testament scriptures actually specify that that resurrection would take place on the third day. Could you have affirmed that? The the Old Testament promises a third day resurrection. Could you? And yet, hallelujah and praise God, that is exactly what happens in the Old Testament. Think of it from the psalm earlier on. That promise of the psalm that the Holy One would not see decay to Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days to Hosea's promise of restoration on the 
third day to the crossing of the Jordan on the third day. What do you see throughout the Old Testament? You see hints. Do you say you see indicators? No, you see promises, predictions that that Savior, yes, he would suffer. Yes, he would win freedom and he would rise to life and rise on the third day. I stand up here and I hope with all my being that you, Christian friends, see what that should mean for you today. It should mean that you today have confidence in the Easter event. I mean, don't you recognize it? The gospel wasn't an afterthought. (laughs) I mean, the good news of Christ Jesus was not some theory that was put together years after these events in Jerusalem. Don't you see it? Doesn't it stir your soul for centuries? And I mean that for hundreds And hundreds of years prior to its occurrence, the Holy Scriptures promised the resurrection of the Anointed One. It was planned by God. It was promised by God. And today the Church of Christ can be confident and confident in the fact that that tomb is empty and Jesus Christ, He lives. So we see what the church should be confronted by the resurrection and we thank God that the church can be confident in the resurrection of Jesus and then lastly in a word the church must be consistent with the resurrection of Christ the church must be consistent with the resurrection I'm sure everyone in this room just now knows what is meant by a creed. Do we all know what a creed is? It has nothing to do with the Rocky films. It's nothing to do with Apollo. Creed, nothing to do with that. Do we know what a creed is? A creed is an agreed statement of faith, isn't it? A creed, isn't it? So it's a set of beliefs that are very often that it's agreed upon and... It recited. If I say a creed to you, what do you think of? You think of the Apostles' Creed. Is that right? We, we, we go with that? Yeah, good. We know what we're talking about. Well, most commentators agree with this, and I agree with it too. That what Paul is doing in this section of Scripture is actually taking what was an existing creed of the early church, and Paul is adding to it. Does everyone follow that? So Paul's got an existing, and that's quite a thought, isn't it? Well, we were at an early stage of the church. But Paul is taking an existing, an established statement of faith from the early church. He takes it, and he builds upon it, and he adds upon it. Everyone get the idea? It's one thing for me to tell you that's what's going on. It's maybe better for me to show you it. You're interested, I'm sure. So look at verse 6. Let me show you the existing creed. You see the idea? It's like the church is saying, we believe that Christ died. And was buried. And he was raised. And then note what the creed goes on to say. The creed says, and Jesus appeared to Cephas and the twelve. Now what most commentators would be agreed on is that is where the creed seems to end. You see, Christ was, he died, he was buried, he was raised. He appeared to Cephas and the twelve. 
And then do you notice what Paul goes on to do? Look at verse 6 to see what Paul adds to it. Paul adds a few more resurrection appearances, doesn't he? So the church has said he appeared to Cephas and he appeared to the twelve. And then Paul adds the fact that Christ appeared to 500 of the brothers. He adds that Christ appeared to James. He adds that he appeared to the apostles. And then Paul adds, finally, that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to himself, appeared to Paul. Now, we're back to our, our questions here. What's the question you ask? If I'm saying that Paul has added to an existing creed, you ask, don't you? Why? Why on earth has Paul seen a fit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to add existing new resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would he do this? Well, let me give you suggested answers. Some think that what Paul was doing was trying to persuade these Corinthians that Jesus truly was risen. In fact, that's how many people understand this portion of Scripture. Do you see the idea? That almost to persuade the Corinthians, Paul adds further witnesses, further evidence. Is that right, do you think? It's not right. Because consider the fact that these people were Christians. Verse 1 tells you they already believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were standing in Christ's resurrection. Paul's not trying to convince them of this truth. Other people, hmm, they pay very close attention to the the words in verse 6. Because do you notice what Paul says? He says that some of the 500 had, what's the word he uses? They had fallen asleep. So some people suggest, ah, Paul's been really clever. He's reminding the Corinthians that death is temporary. He's, they've fallen asleep. They are very soon to bodily rise. That's better. Do you think that's it? Is that what Paul is doing here? I don't think that's what Paul is doing. And if anything this morning, and I, I know it's, again, it's warm in here, isn't it? And it's stuffy. But if you're going to get anything from this sermon this morning, I would long for it to be these next few words that come out of my mouth. What is this portion of scripture? What is is Paul's purpose here? In this section, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the consensus of Christian preaching. That's what Paul is doing. Do you see the idea? He's saying to these Corinthians that from the very beginning of the church, from Cephas to the 12, to James, to the 500, to the apostles, right down to Paul, what's happened? That the consistent witness of the Christian church has been the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus. Reminding them, this is the consensus of what we preach. In fact, you know what floats my boat? In verse 11, maybe you'll look at it, where Paul says, this is what we preach. The tense again is continuous. That here Paul is not just saying, we have always preached that Christ is risen. What Paul is saying is, this is what we must go on to preach. We must, the church must go on and preach Christ's actual bodily resurrection from the dead. And so I want to close this sermon like this. We listen. We live in a desperate city in many, many ways. And we live in a city where so many so-called churches are denying 
what Paul clearly sees as a central tenet of the Christian church. Isn't that right? If you look around London, there are so many churches that are ignoring the actual resurrection of Jesus in favor of some prosperity, nonsense, or self-help, guff. And there are other churches right here in the city and not too far away from us. And what do they do? They try and turn what we are seeing here. They turn it, try to turn it into just a metaphor to make it somehow easier for people to swallow. And I'm saying this to you. I want you to hear it. This is where we take our stand. Do you understand? The bodily resurrection of Christ. It is the hill upon which we must be prepared to fight. The actual resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hill upon which we must be prepared even to die. We must not waver on this, Christian friend. We must not move. We must not bend. We must not falter on this. And surely if you're in Christ Jesus, you see why. It is only through Christ's resurrection that any person can be saved. It is only through trusting in Christ and his redemptive work that any person on this earth will ever be made right with God and enjoy everlasting life themselves. So, no surprise to you, I end with one question. There are many that are in this room this morning. Do you believe in Jesus? That's it. Do you believe in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ as the one who has, yes, on that hill at Calvary, atoned for the sins of his people, the one who was buried as a corpse in that tomb? But are you today trusting in Christ as the one who has, by his Father, been raised to everlasting life? If you are not trusting in Jesus, why ever would you not if you're not trusting in jesus christ will you not this easter morning come to him in repentance of your sin trust in him throw yourself on him and if you do so listen what i'm saying to you by god's grace you will be saved saved from your sin and you will know in your heart with surety this that one day Your body too shall rise. Your body too will rise physically in the manner of your Savior before you. And best of all in Christ, one day his people en masse, we will rise to meet our Lord. Friend, if you have not, come today to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we tremble because of all the things that are happening in our lives, of all the things that occupy our thinking, we are told that these verses are of first 
importance. That there is nothing in our existence, nothing in our experience that in any way trumps the need to bow to Christ and to worship you, O Lord Jesus, as the crucified one, the buried one, and the one who has raised victorious over death and victorious over the evil one, the one who has finally and forever dealt with the sins of his people. Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts to increase our faith, but to save those in here who stand condemned, would you take them from darkness to everlasting light in Christ? And we pray not for ourselves, even not for them. We pray all for the glory of our risen, exalted Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.